Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast exploring rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. And a very special welcome today to our inaugural episode of Rural Spark. To kick things off, we wanted to take a look at rural innovation in Canada writ large. Has the promise of technological advances delivered for our rural communities, or are we doing enough to harness them? Do municipalities need to throw out the rule book when it comes to addressing challenges like out-migration? And where are exciting innovations happening now in rural communities, both here at home and around the world? To explore these topics, we invited Dr. Ken Coates, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan, to join us. Dr. Coates' research is identifying strategies that will enable remote and rural communities to capitalize on the possibilities of scientific and technological change. He's particularly interested in the ability of governments, businesses, and communities to seize the possibilities of these changes and leverage them to provide better services and economic development at the local level. Well, I wanted to talk with you today a little bit about the promise of technological change for rural communities, especially when it comes to things like telecommuting and the idea that uh, we can really work from anywhere now. While some people maybe have found ways to make that work, would you say that the vision for this kind of trend hasn't really materialized for rural Canada? And if not, what do you think is holding us back? Well, that's a big question. No, the vision has not materialized. Um, In fact, a surprisingly small number of people are even interested in it. Um, We've moved, I think, to put it in really blunt terms, we've moved to what I describe as a city-state economy, where five or six cities are garnering most of our investment. The vast majority of employment growth happens in only a small number of cities across Canada. We're seeing continued rural depopulation. We're seeing companies in small towns struggling. So we're not close um, to a sort of a rural innovation strategy. In fact, I would argue that the innovation gap regarding rural, rural communities is getting larger, not smaller, that the problem is getting greater. Um, and how does that show up? Um, internet speeds. If you look at the way the internet is being developed, it is focusing very, very strongly on getting our sort of five or six top cities up to international standards, a perfectly appropriate sort of thing to do. Um, but the rural areas are, are way behind. And, and we're getting, you know, sort of investments in the last five years in rural Canada while we're getting investments in the next five years in urban Canada. So we've got a very serious problem about innovation. So let me put it more positively. If you'd ask the question, could innovation revitalize rural Canada and give wonderful opportunities and and, uh, chances for economic growth and social prosperity in these regions, the answer is yes. Um, but it's not happening. And unless we get a dramatic change in perspective and government programming and commercial engagement, I can't see it happening in the near future. When you look at the size of Canada and and where communities are spread out, even though we have urbanization concentrated at the, the lower border, um, that seems to be an unwise strategy. Like if, especially when we talk about forecasting for the future, we can't all move to urban centers. Why do you think this is not, um, you know, coming to the forefront of uh, policymakers and influencers? Well, that's a great question. You know, I'm, I, I think people will believe we all can live in big cities. Um, if you look at what's happened three, four years ago, we became a more urban than rural world for the first time in human history. The estimates are that by 2050, about 65% or more of people in the world will live in cities and not in rural areas and small towns. Um, So the trend line is actually exactly the opposite. There's no particular reason why we have that structure. Um, There's a lot of work that can be done uh, remotely. 
an awful lot of opportunities that exist for people in smaller towns. There's enormous social, cultural, personal, intellectual, psychological benefits from living in rural areas and small towns. So, in fact, we should be having a real robust national debate, not about whether we should make sure that rural Canada participates in the, in the innovation economy, but how do we make it participate more effectively? But that is not the debate right now. And in fact, even a lot of rural areas have become quite fatalistic about this. They sort of assume that, well, because it's a big country and because it's small uh, population, because the big cities are so large and growing so fast, there's nothing we can do. Um, remember that this country was built uh, around the idea of battling and conquering distance. That in fact, if you look at our major investments and our major innovations as a country, it's things like the transcontinental railway which didn't make an awful lot of sense from an economic point of view in the short term, but sure held the country together reasonably well. We were very, very good at developing uh, you know, radio systems, uh, bush pilot systems, uh, radar systems, uh, telecommunications in the far north and Arctic. We, we actually were really good at this, and we've decided not to be good at this now. Um, and so what happens is we have a national, uh, one of our nation's capitals, uh, Iqaluit in Nunavut, that has unbelievably poor internet connectivity. Uh, we just, no other country in the world will tolerate this. Uh, and we look at it and say, oh, gee, oh, of course, well, they're up there and there's only 6,000 people. So what else can you do? The answer is you can do a lot. Um, it does cost some money. Being a big country carries with it some costs. But we've not figured out how to internalize that. And we do not have in, in sort of uh, uh, rural Canada, uh, to use your title, uh, we don't have the spark yet uh, when it comes to sort of innovation and understanding what's being lost and understanding the long-term consequences of that loss. Oh, well, I think our, our title then must be aspirational, so we'll look to the future for that. Um, do you think, uh, Dr. Coates, that businesses have to do more too in terms of being really open to doing things differently, being open to having talented workers in rural communities um, where their head office might be somewhere else? Uh, an interview we did recently, uh, there was a comment about where we have um, digital hubs, uh, you know, technology hubs in North America, the real estate costs are just sky high. They're really, um, you know, unreachable for many people. So is that something that those companies and others coming along in the technological wave should be looking at? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the great things is that is that we, we cannot sort of assume that government will solve the problem for us. That's not going to work. And if we wait for government to come up with a solution or a policy profile, um, nothing's going to happen. So every once in a while, the government of Canada says, oh, we're going to put in $200 million into rural uh, digitization. And everybody across the country says, oh, this is good. We're finally catching up with, with rural you know, digitization. And then you sort of do the math and say, well, how many people does that cover? The answer is not very many. Um, let's go back to the company side, because I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of companies are moving in that direction. There's a growing a variety of work that can be done in remote locations, whether you're a travel agent, whether you're an animator, um, you can work for a bank, you can be a financial advisor. There's literally thousands of jobs that can be done anywhere. If you look at the pattern to this point, the areas that are that are are benefiting from that that structure are what we call sort of shadow areas. So they're they're not really far remote areas. They're not really rural areas. They're located within maybe 100 to 150 kilometers of a major city. So people can live in, um, you know, up near uh, Barrie, Ontario. They can live in Squamish, British Columbia. They can live in Iracana, Alberta. Uh, some place where they can be out of, the, out of the, the main metropolitan area. They can get to town in an hour, hour and a half drive. 
maybe once or twice a week when they have to go in for meetings or to meet with clients or something of that nature. Um, those are the areas that are benefiting. And we're actually seeing a growth in sort of rural professional uh, uh, migration into those areas, say 100 kilometers outside of Ottawa. And you can go into Ottawa once a week or twice a week if you have to. You don't have to pay the big costs of living in Ottawa. You can have, buy a house for half the price, 150 kilometers away in Pembroke. And, you know, that model is, is an interesting, interesting one. Um, but it isn't taking us to Hearst, Ontario. Um, it actually isn't doing very much for Flin Flon, Manitoba, or helping us out in Faroe in the Yukon. And it should be. Um, the processes, the distances are irrelevant when you talk about working online. Um, but in fact, we still haven't gotten people away from the idea that they have to live close to those great urban magnets. And I think the issue, it's interesting because I, I love the work that you do, um, because you're, you're drawing attention to something that's, that's really misunderstood and underappreciated across Canada as, as a whole. It's extremely valuable to a country to maintain the option of living in rural and small town areas. Not everybody wants to live there. If I look at my family, um, my brother is an absolutely classic, wonderful guy, and he's an urban person. Lives in Toronto, loves it, capitalizes on the benefits of being in the city. Um, I'm not. Um, I'm living in Saskatoon. Saskatoon's really on the edge, getting too big for me. I'd much prefer <laughs> living in Whitehurst if I could, because Whitehurst is only 25,000, 30,000 people. And I really like the size of those smaller places. And it's not to say that one's better than the other. It's not. Um, but if we don't provide the opportunity to have a good, full quality of life, including employment, including economic commercial development in these smaller towns, then they're just going to continue to die. Um, and, and, and we're seeing this happen around the world. Um, and we're seeing big companies that previously had a factory in a small town, you know, 800 employees in a town of 3,000 people. Well, they pull the plug. And if we're really unlucky as a country, they move the factory uh, to another to some other nation. They maybe go to Mexico, they maybe go to China, maybe go to the Philippines, and we lose the business entirely. Or they relocate to the area around a big city. They move into Milton, uh, or they, they move into Ajax. They, they move into the areas surrounding Toronto or surrounding these big, these big locations. Um, and the small town is just hit, hitting over a head with a hammer. It's a terrible, terrible impact uh, on, those, on those communities when those companies uh, disappear. So we're seeing countries like Japan that will probably see several thousand towns and communities close uh, in the next 10 years. Uh, rapid depopulation of the country as a whole, rural depopulation in a major sort of way, town after town after town basically folding up and giving up. And, and I think this is really harsh for reality for society as a whole. Um, it costs a lot to keep people in the cities. It's a different quality of life and not everybody fits in well. So I think we can do an awful lot better. We do see in Canada some municipalities uh, trying to do some really innovative things to attract remote workers and, and other newcomers. A recent example um, that's garnered headlines, as you know, is from the small town of McAdam, New Brunswick, which is now offering building lots for a dollar each to attract newcomers. A few years back, you might remember there was a story of a, a small Cape Breton business offering land in exchange for a commitment to join their staff. Um, to help address the problems they had finding employees. These kinds of strategies do attract media attention, but do they work in your experience? And, and do you think that rural communities in Canada really have to do more of thinking uh, about completely breaking the mold in terms of strategies to address uh, out-migration? I think they really do have to break the mold and sort of almost start again. Uh, many of the communities, these small communities, were organized around a single industry. Um, somebody opened up a mine. 
and the mine closed. So a lot of most of the people leave because they lost their jobs. Well, fair enough. Um, but some of those communities, Elliott Lake in Ontario, Faro in the Yukon, refused to die. They just said, we, we want to stay. Um, other places, uh, Pine Point, Cassiar, Clinton Creek, all northern communities, they, the communities are basically gone. So the communities have to decide if they want to sort of stay and fight. Um, some of those programs that get a lot of attention do work. Remember, it doesn't take very much. If you're talking about a town of a 1,000 people and you do something and get 50 people to move into the community, either employees, retirees, whatever it happens to be, you know, employed people or people with small businesses, um, that can have a huge, a huge impact. You don't need to have 5,000 people move back to a small town for it to be a success. So what happens is we're seeing that the individual uh, initiatives, whether it's a uh, you know cheap building lots or even cheap houses or or something like that, um, they 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 some work and some don't. But what does work is that the declaration of confidence works. When you get situations where communities basically say we're going to stick together, we're going to rally, we're going to do some interesting things, people sort of look at that and go, well, that might be a place I'd like to stay. There's a wonderful example of a community in, in Sweden, that a mining town, and, and the mining town was, mine was closing down, and uh, so people sort of said, well, you know, the government sort of said, well, people are going to have to move out and, you know, sell your houses and if you can and, and just leave. And the community people, most of them got together and said, you know, we actually really like each other. We like the sense of community. We got long, 100-year-old roots in here. We don't want to just disappear. And so they started, at one point, one of these communities actually got a full-page ad in a national newspaper saying, you know, a community available for business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anybody wants to come up here, we got 400 people who want to work and bring your company up. Um, these things are attention-getting devices, and sometimes they really do work. In one case in Scandinavia, uh, northern Sweden, the community was sort of, well, what do we do? You know, what, all we have up here is cold weather. You know, we, we don't have a mine anymore, so all we have is cold weather. And what happened is somebody said, yeah. Cold weather is a business opportunity, and they've created the the, the the Arctic testing station for automobile manufacturers in Europe. And all of a sudden, you have Audis and Mercedes and all these other companies, Renault, coming up and doing their winter testing in this community, small rural community in northern Sweden. More jobs than before, more stability, higher incomes, and a very high level of satisfaction. So the issue, I don't think, is is necessarily a specific policy initiative. You can't all give away free land and, and get everybody sort of uh, comfortable and have it, have it work out. Um, uh, it, won't, it won't work if you just copy everybody else's idea. But showing that a community is determined to do something dramatic, I think really, really helps. And, and then there are some small things. You see this particularly in British Columbia, where communities have succeeded in large measure by focusing on quality of life issues. Uh, my wife is a political scientist here at the University of Saskatchewan. And She's created, she made it sort of partly in jest, but she created something called the Holroyd Latte Index. And she said that you can go into a town, a small town, and discover very, very quickly whether this will be a place that professionals will be attracted to. And professionals meaning nurses and doctors and uh, teachers and other you know, lawyers and, and, and other sort of uh, professional people. And the Latte Index, it gives it away. The title gives it away. Essentially, she said, do you have a place where you can go get a good latte? And what's really interesting about that is, you know, that doesn't mean you can get a latte at Tim Hortons. It means, a, you know, sort of an urban-style latte shop with fern bars and, and scones and, and, and fancy drinks, right? It doesn't take very much. A town that has two of those things in a town of 2,000 people actually is really attractive for the professional groups who look to that as part of sort of their, their contemporary lifestyle. And so towns that are, are, are trying to figure out what people want and need have a really good chance of success. 
Um, doesn't mean they'll all succeed. Um, you know, a small prairie community that loses its grain elevator is in trouble. And there's not much you can do about that. But I love watching communities fight back. I love them doing innovative things. Tremendously impressed when Olds Alberta decided they would bring one gigabyte internet speeds into every town, every, every home and building in the community, and they did it. Um, these are exciting initiatives that I think give hope for all small towns everywhere in Canada. Well, that's an optimistic note. And, and I know that your research looks a lot at um, the possibilities of scientific and technological change for these kinds of communities. Do we need to do more of bringing the scientific and, um, you know, the, uh, the scholarly, the research community into this debate? I mean, you're at a university, you're very engaged in this, but um, is there more we need to do maybe on both sides to bring those communities together when we find solutions? Oh, I think so. And I think it's really interesting going to conferences and workshops and seminars and things like that across the country. I've had the really good fortune of doing that in many parts of Canada. And, and in each place you'll find a community that's doing this. Uh, they're fighting back. They've got a microbrewery. They're, they're building some local resorts and tourist activities. They're, they're doing a craft industry kind of expansion. Um, but I think it really helps us to sort of keep in mind what, what is occurring elsewhere. So in North America, uh, we have a real bias toward beauty spots. And so a place like Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, it's on the coast. It's really beautiful, very attractive. Shamanas, British Columbia, same sort of thing. Nelson, B.C., um, any of the places in Banff, Jasper, Kananaskas, Canmore. These are trickly, beautiful, scenic sort of areas, lots of outdoor activities and things. They tend to do well in North America. Um, we very much respond to those kinds of, of circumstances. But I'm a huge fan. We, my wife and I lived in New Zealand for two years. And one of the things that really stood out in New Zealand was the fact that they had very robust small towns. You're driving along and you come to a town of 3,000 people and you drive down the main street and there's no empty stores and there's a bunch of really you know, locally owned grocery stores and, and, and restaurants and almost no chain stores, that kind of thing. And you think, wow, what's going on here? Now, in New Zealand, you were helped by the fact that you have a whole bunch of relatively small farms. So in Saskatchewan, the farms are getting larger and larger and larger. So you have fewer and fewer people producing more and more food. Um, so that's not something that's a precondition for, for rural success. But again, to look at Saskatchewan, we, one of the most interesting things happening here um, has been the, the, the growth of creative activity in tiny towns. And these are poets and they're writers and they're novelists and they're, they're painters and they're ceramic specialists and whatever who realize that they can go into a rural area and buy an extremely inexpensive house. And they can be in a community that's very supportive and just loves having these folks there. Um, and they can actually have a really, really good life. Um, and and just, just getting out of, the, out of the rat race, getting out of the cities. Um, and we've seen a, a hundreds of people moving, not, not thousands, not millions, but hundreds of people picking up on those ideas and, and, and those approaches. We've seen success in other places, some places in Australia, that have focused on immigration and said, well, why don't we go and find people from other parts of the world that want to live here? And we'll, we'll look at, at our small town, and rather than seeing it as a sort of a problem, we'll actually see it as something that's really interesting and really exciting. And so, you know, again, you don't need thousands of people. Um, if you can get um, you know, the first 40 people you can get to come over from India and migrate over into to, uh, a North America in, in, into a North American city, and you can find yourself with 200 uh, five, 10 years down the line uh, because people see this as really exciting and really dynamic. And so I think that there are many, many avenues uh, that we haven't really explored yet. And the one that works more than anything else 
is absolute, you know, sort of real commitment and enthusiasm on the part of the, the community leadership, the business community, and what have you. The other part that we, we still don't have very well, but very strongly in Canada, has been a sort of a, a very robust uh, professional business community that's willing to relocate. Um, we still think professionally that if you don't living in a big city, you're not really having a good idea, uh, not having a good life. And they can't imagine going up to northern Ontario or even going up to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to the Lakes Districts and these really beautiful small towns that exist a couple hundred kilometers away from Toronto. We really have to break that psychology and get people excited about the possibilities of these small towns. And and what's fascinating, but if I harp on something else a little bit, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. sure. That that you know, when you go back to twenty years, let's say thirty years ago, and when we really started to see the start of rural depopulation in many parts of Canada, people say, "Why are you leaving?" Well, there's nothing to do here. There's no entertainment. Um, and now we've created the internet. You get more entertainment on your cell phone than you can get have had in fourteen movie theaters, you know, twenty years ago. Well, you know, we can't get any educational opportunity. And I'm sorry, you can get the world's best universities piped into your into your living room. So that doesn't hold sort of much anymore. Well, the medical care coverage is not all that great. Well, we have innovations in medical care that will give you world-class uh, attention and, and, and particularly preventative medicine sort of almost anywhere in, this, in the country, except for the really far north and rural isolated uh, remote communities. You know, we, we've addressed the, the entertainment issue. We've addressed the shopping issue. Got a problem with shopping? Go online. We can get you hundreds and hundreds of stores. Alibaba has more stuff available than almost you know any city in Canada. Uh, What's well, one website? And that's say Amazon.com. So you can shop, you can be entertained, you can be educated, you can be medically looked after, you can be engaged politically. You, you're not cut off from the information sort of revolution. You have all these things. We've addressed all of the reasons why people 30 years ago said you had to leave small towns. And they're still leaving. So the thing we haven't addressed is how do people make a living? And we really need a very robust national program, not a government program with lots of funding in it, but a sort of a combination private sector, local development, um, you know, sort of a a small town uh, enthusiasm movement that essentially says, let's create the 21st century economy and let's make sure that there's a rural component to it so that people can indeed work anywhere and live anywhere and bring real life and vitality back into these places. When you think of somebody graduating from university within a computer science program or something like that and contemplating where they're going to live and looking at the housing prices in Vancouver and Toronto and places like that, you know, you think, well, what are you doing? You know, why don't you work in Pembroke, British Columbia, and you know, up near north, north of north of Whistler, beautiful place, stunningly beautiful place, relatively accessible to Vancouver when you really actually have to go there. Think of hundreds and hundreds of communities in rural Ontario in rural Quebec, staggeringly beautiful places. Same with the Maritimes. And friendly local people that are really excited about newcomers coming into their towns. Why do people who get a computer science degree think you have to go to a city? And how do you get the communities to sort of promote themselves as, as sort of, you know, digital working places? How do you get companies to accept this? And, you know, what are the mechanisms we can use to make this a real part of, of 21st century life? I don't fancy a Canada that essentially has five or six economies and, and a couple of resort areas located in Stratford and, and, and uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake and Banff and Jasper, that's not the Canada I think is, is, is healthy and vibrant for this country. We need thousands of small, vibrant communities, each of which is providing a platform for future prosperity and individual engagement.
And I'll add Guysboro, Nova Scotia, where we're based, is a beautiful place in the Maritimes where <laughs> that kind of thing can surely happen. And uh, we'd like to see more people move to. Maritimes is beautiful. Unbelievable. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, you've, you, why, why do people sort of not look and even go to a very bigger place like St. Andrews and think, wow, this is fabulous. There's a whole mechanism of these, of these small towns that are sensational places to live. And somehow we just become fatalistic about the fact that, well, there's not much you can do and we're always going to end up looking that way. Yeah. And you mentioned the real estate costs, you know, we, um, we 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 moved into a new building with our our little business our little communications business last year on Main Street in Guysboro along the waterfront and um and and paid around $50,000 for it last year it's a beautiful spot so um i don't know where where else besides those kinds of communities in canada you can get that kind of um impact for your investment well well you can't and you know that um and and you look and think well what's going on here this is not this doesn't make any sense at all um, you know, thanks to the joys of the internet, I'm looking at a map of your town and some wonderful pictures of it. <laughs> and think, good gracious, what a phenomenal quality of life that you can have in a place like this. Um, this is just absolutely terrific. And it isn't for everybody. You know, not everybody really wants to move into these kind of places and deals with the local scrutiny and the sort of the, the, the people down the street and all that kind of stuff. But other people love it. And, and they'll love it more when they have a chance to actually experience it. So I think the challenge really is breaking away from this mentality that says you have to be in the city to be successful. Um, and we use these gross numbers, you know, hey, listen, I'm making $120,000 a year. Well, actually, if you lived in Guysboro and you make $60,000 a year, you have a higher quality of life. Exactly. And actually, you'll probably be picked up because if you live make 100, only 120000 in Toronto, you're either living in a, in a garage somewhere in the main part of the city, or you're actually you know, living uh, in Brampton, and you're spending an hour and a half commuting into town every day in both directions. And you know, living in Guysboro, you've just given yourself two days a week of extra time. Well, this, this is not, again, for everybody, but let's make sure that people understand the cost and consequences of the life choices that they're making. And what do we do to make it so that places like Guysboro just are, are logical choices for individuals who are seeking certain lifestyle opportunities? And you mentioned there, um, you know, some of the parties that we need to come together and get mobilized to make things happen. Do you think one of the problems is in rural Canada is that we, we have a history of looking too heavily for government to take the lead in solving these kinds of challenges? Well, it's interesting. In Canada, we always look too quickly to government. And, and government has a clear role to play. I mean, in fact, if you look at it, there are things like, uh, you know, subsidy payments for, you know, if you live in a, in a northern area, you get a, you get a northern allowance, with the, you know, to, compensate for the high cost of living. Well, it's interesting, if you look at some communities, Yukon being a good example, when they remove some of those benefits, the population stabilized. Because people before always felt like they were being bribed to come up there. And if you're bribed to live in Guysboro, you think you're, you're being penalized. So boy, I'm having to give up a lot to be here, you're going to pay me a whole bunch of money. Oh, you get back to where you don't get any of those bribery, you think, do I want to live here? People will say yes. Um, so I do think we look too quickly to government. We also, um, we don't have a good forum for having this conversation with business because the issue is not about the business community as a whole. It's not about, um, you know, what are we doing with General Motors? What are we doing with the Royal Bank? It isn't, it isn't something like that. Um, it's just a more general ethos in the, in the business community, which means 
um, whether the banks will invest in companies that move into small towns, whether you can get venture capital, if you're not going to be in downtown Toronto or at least in Kitchener-Waterloo, if you can actually get investors thinking that, boy, this might be a company worth me you know, supporting when they can't get there from the Toronto airport in 45 minutes. Those are big issues and changes we actually have to go through. What's fascinating is if you look at the places that have very robust small town, uh, New Zealand being a really good example based really on sort of small size rural um, uh, you know, agriculture. Um, but places like Norway, Finland and Sweden, the small towns are very robust as well. And there what you have is a very good sort of you know, welfare state arrangement with very strong capitalist impulses. This is not a place where the government owns everything. They actually really encourage small town business and small town development. I was uh, talking to the sister of a person who's actually building some really interesting electronic outboard motors for pleasure boats. It's a really great technology, right, where you actually get, you use solar panels and electrical heating, electrical system power, and you make, you know, really silent, really easy to run outboard motors for, for pleasure purposes. That's a huge, huge market in Canada when this comes down the line. When you look at where this company is based, you actually have to go to Bergen, which is a you know, relatively small city in, in Norway, and then drive about two hours away to the end of a peninsula and get on a ferry and go across to an island, and that's where the company is located. And in Norway, that company's received two major you know, innovation grants from the, from the government of Norway through a competitive commercial process. They've got bank funding sort of available to them through the Norwegian sort of business communities, and they're determined to set up a small factory. They're probably only going to employ 50 people. But in a town of 1,400, 1,500 folks, that's a massive amount of investment. And it's kind of hard to find a comparable thing like that in Canada. And in many places, the ones that are doing this, uh, this is a Fogo Island, for example, in Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know about that. Yes. You know, that required somebody from, who went away, earned hundreds of millions of dollars, and brought a portion of it back to invest in their community. So the other part that we haven't talked about, if you don't mind me sort of yes. changing the conversation a little bit, yeah. is to say, how? and you raised this yourself earlier on, you know, how do you convince young people they can have a future in these towns? Overwhelmingly, the, the popular culture in North America is tilted toward urban centers. That's where opportunity is. That's where glitz and excitement is. The stories about small towns and the songs about small towns are all about how depressing they are, and how nobody wants to live here. And the lucky people get away and the, the unlucky people are stuck. This is, this is a huge sort of popular culture tsunami that basically says that if you're going to stay in a small town, there's something wrong with you. And we have that problem as a country as a whole, where people who really, really succeed are the ones who you know, go, to, go to California or go to New York City or go to London. And so we have this, this inferiority complex built into the Canadian mindset. But my heavens, is that ever strong in the rural area? And I would love to see a sort of a program where rural communities, small rural communities get together, promote those business people who come back, who stay at home, the young people who sort of finish their college diploma or their university degree and immediately come home to start a business, uh, working with local investors and sort of build things up and, and go strongly. I was in a small town in Ontario uh, just a little while ago where the local business people sort of got behind a young man who wanted to set up a cheese factory. And some of the local business people were dairy folks and said, well, I'm going to sell my milk to somebody. I may as well sell them to a local cheesemaker. And within five years, this person's really profitable. Is he making a million dollars a year? No. Is he having a great life? Absolutely. Does he love living in a small town? Over the top with excitement about it. You know, so we have to be very much more aware of the fact that we are just falling into a trap 
of sort of rapid ur urbanization and just fall into this idea that that's the only way to go. It is not the only way to go. There's lots of other alternatives and, and each, you know, Guysboro by itself can't take on the world um, any, any more than, than Morden, Manitoba can, um, any more than Illo across in, in Saskatchewan can. But if you start getting these communities talking to each other, um, then we're going to start seeing some real development. And here's an irony of ironies for you. I see that one of the places where this is going to happen and very happen very dramatically is actually going to be through Indigenous communities. For the first time in 150 years, Indigenous communities actually have both their own money and access to capital. They are more likely to invest in local business than they are to invest in, in urban business. Some urban developments, but most of them are not. And they're more likely to hire local people. And we're in, it's just really interesting seeing these Indigenous communities who put a priority not so much on making money. They want to be profitable, but they don't, they're not looking at making scandalous amounts of, of, of money overall. But their high priority is on hiring local people and providing local services. And wouldn't it be ironic? if it was indigenous people that showed us in rural areas uh, the way back to sort of high levels of comfort in local support and in actually being strong about staying on your traditional territories. And you, you'll know this in the Maritimes that after the Marshall decision in 1999, which actually gave indigenous people the right to fish for commercial purposes for the first time in generations, um, that in fact there's over a thousand indigenous businesses that were created from 1999 until the present. It produces tens of millions of dollars a year in annual economic activity. It strengthened indigenous communities in these smaller towns, and they've had other businesses flow out of that. Wouldn't that be an interesting sort of development in Canada to see indigenous people showing the way? Yeah, I think that's actually very likely that that we are seeing some innovative things come out of and, and being talked about and developed in indigenous communities. And uh, there very well could be models that are going to uh, serve other communities, other rural communities in Canada very well. You've given us, uh, Dr. Coates, uh, a number of uh, strategies that you think we need to do better at or, or adopt in Canada. If you were to look at the short term, say the next three years, what would you prioritize is what we really have to tackle? Would it be that connecting with the young people piece and or maybe uh, that bringing rural communities more together to share strategies and, and tactics to move forward? So I do two things first. Um, and and the, the second one, I'll do the second one first in one sense. You mentioned the story about the community that sort of provided building lots for a dollar. Right. Um, and it's really interesting. You notice thing about that is that got really a lot of coverage. There were lots of people talking about that on the radio and on television, magazine articles, and people were saying, oh, this is really, watch this community fight back. Imagine if you had 50 stories like that a month. Imagine if you had a situation where the rural community just said, okay, we've had it. We're going to talk about our quality of life. We're going to talk about business opportunities. We're going to promote ourselves as an investment destination. We're going to talk about why immigrants should come here and how we're ready we are to support them and encourage them in migrating into Canada. And imagine if that just became a flood of information. And I, so you notice what I'm saying, what, what I'm, I'm not saying. Don't start this by talking about how bad cities are. Cities right. drive me crazy. I think, I think the 401 is the single least attractive thing of all of Canada, the 401 highway through Toronto. But you don't have to do that. We don't have to talk about negative things about cities. People who live in cities know the negative things. They're sitting on the 401 stuck in traffic for an hour and a half on a Thursday evening. You know, and they're sitting and going, why am I living here? We don't need to be negative, right? That that'll take care of itself. But imagine a whole systematic campaign of small town after small town after small town, telling their stories, talking about things, changing the Canadian mindset, 
getting young people who've chosen to stay to talk about why they stayed and what they're doing, using podcasts, using social media, inundating the whole Canadian system with story after story after story, uh, mining towns that refuse to die. These are really great things. So that's the number one thing. The number two thing I would do is actually get the communities. They don't have to be organized. Don't have to spend money. Don't have to get grants. Don't have to do that kind of stuff. You basically just overwhelm you know, the, the, the social media and the news world with stories about how rural Canada is fighting back. And I think that's a great story. It, it's one of these things where success builds confidence. Confidence builds uh, you know, risk-taking. Risk-taking builds creates new businesses and employment opportunities. It's a kind of a virtuous cycle. But the first thing I would do is the one you mentioned, and that is talk to young people. Um, one of the things I find fascinating, I was dean of arts at the University of Waterloo, and I was asked to give a talk to you know, technology graduates who were heading off to do different sectors. And we have a disproportionate number of graduates from the University of Waterloo head to the United States. They go to Redmond, Washington, and work for Microsoft. They go down to Silicon Valley, work for all these different companies. And so I gave a talk, and I, I, I'm quite blunt about these things, I hope in a sort of a positive kind of way. And I said, you know, you guys have no right to leave. You young men and women, you've been educated in this fabulous country. You've been given a high-quality high school education, great university education. You've been encouraged to sort of achieve your goals. And when you just pick up and go across the border, you're letting us down. You're letting yourselves down. And, you know, you might make a little bit more money down there, but you're not living in Canada anymore. And you're going to notice the impact of that down the line. Imagine if you had a high school graduation event and, you know, the mayor stands up in each small town across the country and says basically, Young people, we need you to be part of our future. And for some of you, that'll take you to a university to get a biochemical degree. And for somebody else, it'll take you to a community college to get a training in something else. You might even go away because you want to travel for a while, but don't forget your home community. We want you back. We need you back. Our future rests in your hands. And imagine if that was said, you know, five, 10,000 times a year at every single high school graduation event. And imagine, secondly, if local businesses got together and said, we're going to every year award 10 work scholarships to our, our best graduates. So when they go, somebody from your community decides they're the you know, 14-year-old, 18-year-old kid, they're graduating from high school, they're going to go down to Dow Tech and take an engineering degree. Uh, imagine if before they left, the community said, by the way, we've got a summer job for you for 2019 and a summer job for 2020, 21, and 22. But imagine the message that sends when those kids go down to Dalhousie. And they're studying with kids from all across Nova Scotia. And they basic message is, hey, you know, in Geisberg, I got a guaranteed summer job for the next three years. And people are going to find jobs that suit my educational qualification. I'll get improvements over time. Uh, and isn't that great? My community just really wants me to stay at home. As opposed to that kid going down there and getting a job in, in uh, Halifax after the, first, uh, after the first academic year and staying there for the next three years and never coming home again. So we need, we need to figure out what to do to young people. It's quite easy, but we also need to do it. And we need to do it without, without apologies. We need young people to love their communities and want to come back and to build a future here. And if they don't see one, then the challenge is on them to help create it. Well, that's a terrific advice and uh, makes a whole lot of sense. I think it is largely about the young people, and that's where a lot of the focus has to go. You've given us some some great advice and food for thought. And at Rural Spark, we're going to do our part, of course, to tell the story of rural innovation and rural success stories. And uh, uh, thanks very much, Dr. Coates, for making time to be with us today. And I hope to catch up with you again in the uh, over the year ahead uh, to see where your research has taken you. Well, I, I'm really interested in your interest, and I really appreciate it enormously. I'm very excited about this. 
I'm excited about what you're doing. Rural Spark is uh, one of those few places that's really just, just jumping out in front of the crowd. Keep doing it, please. Um, I think there's some real exciting things to, in, in the near future. Will do, and thanks very much. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for joining us this week. Please drop us a line with your ideas for upcoming episodes at info at ruralspark.ca. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seaberth. Music by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.